Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Wow, what a privilege. What a privilege to be back together and uh, welcome those that are streaming live. I know that that audience uh, has been growing significantly uh, over the last few weeks. So good to see you all. You know, I get so excited to think, you know, Pastor Chad, uh, in a way that's non-exaggerating, we say this with sincerity, that uh, it's beautiful to be able to see faces, right? And I always think about just the beauty of being able to gather with saints of old, all saints throughout history for eternity. You think about that. It is mind-boggling to think about the beauty of God's people from every tribe, every language, every nation, all times, past, present, and future, gathering together around the throne of God to worship and to encourage and to be a part of a kingdom of whom there is no end. That is a good, good hope to look forward to. Can somebody say amen? It can't get gooder than that, all right? It can't get gooder than that, all right? So we're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible today, I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter uh, 5. Is where we're going to look in just a few moments. Uh, you can follow along on the Uversion app if you'd like uh, there on uh, your phone. And obviously the, the scriptures and the slides would be uh, behind me as well. Uh, I told them um, good morning to one-third of DPC and 9.30. So I'm going to say good morning to another third. And uh, glad that you're here. And today is going to be a marathon, but nonetheless, uh, we're so thrilled. My, my kids are more excited than I am, y'all. I was putting my two to bed last night, my two youngest, my three and seven, and I lay in my three-year-old's bed and, and do a lot of back scratching and storytelling. And then I look across the room. She shares a room with her sister. And so I'm talking to my seven-year-old, and Marley, my seven-year-old, said, Dad, I'm just so excited. I can't even sleep tonight. And uh, that's how excited she is about church. And I said, babe, that's how I feel too, all right? This morning, she's up at like 6.30, fully dressed in our room, like fully dressed. Like, and mom's like, you got a couple of hours, like, as in like three plus hours uh, before we leave. But nonetheless, we're excited. You know, she's ready to get her hair done and, and the whole deal. She's getting her sister ready. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it's amazing to be a part of a church in which my kids love to be here. And uh, I know uh, you feel blessed today to be able to be back, and we're so excited that you're here. Um, we want to spend the next few weeks reading through the book of First Peter. And that's my challenge for you. What better time to get into the daily Bible habit reading, daily habit of Bible reading than now, right? If some of you haven't done that, we have a Bible reading program uh, that you can jump in at any time. So don't think you have to wait till January 1. It's about 15 minutes a day, Old Testament, New Testament passage alike, and Uh, It's just a great, great plan to keep us accountable. But what I would like for us to do as a community is over the next month, of the month of May, I want you to read through 1 Peter, but not just once. Read through it several times. So take the time and maybe addition to what you read, or maybe if you don't read, just pick up on this book and and read through, all right? So much that we want to share from this book, but obviously we have to do so in one single month. Now, the author is Peter, and, and people, you know, I've found they love Peter because there's something about him that we can identify with, Right? I mean, Peter's just like a normal guy, right? He had a big mouth. Uh, He said some stupid things, right? He was just a normal guy, and he was not real churchy, which I think we think is refreshing sometimes, right? I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of the Apostle Paul always up here. 
and, and, and we see like Peter down here, right? Like, like Paul, when he gives his accolades, he's like, hey, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. You know, we think of like Paul, and then Peter's like, oh yeah, but I can tell the difference between a carp and a crappie. You know, like I know the difference between like a striped bass and a largemouth, right? I mean, like that's, that's how we identify with Peter, just a normal average guy. Like, you know, Peter is a, a dude, you know, making beer in his bathtub, you know, and, and Paul's like a guy that's translating scriptures in his spare time, you know. I don't drink beer, by the way. Okay, I'll just go ahead and give that to you. Um, ginger beer, lots of ginger beer. I've been hammering some ginger beer, and my stomach shows. Um, it is non-alcoholic, so ginger beer is just brewed, but nonetheless, we'll make that clear, friends, okay? So a lot of people, they, uh, they're going to get uptight about that. But Paul's a guy who watches the History Channel. Peter's a guy who watches Sports Center. Okay, that's the reality, right? And he writes this to people who are in the midst of suffering. And I think it's really helpful when we study First Peter to realize that the Bible writers never really hide themselves from the question of suffering. Isn't that encouraging? Like, I think sometimes we as modern Christians, we think we're somehow the first ones to ever bring the issue of suffering to bear on the biblical text. You know, it's like no one's ever suffered for 2,000 years but us. And we think suffering is like a novelty, right? And we're bringing that to the text. But no, what the Apostle Peter tells us, I'm not only aware of that question, but I'm writing to people who are living that question. In fact, at one time, Peter calls them fiery trials. In the book, he talks about the fiery trials. And those might not be a metaphor. That could be, sincerely, a literal fire. Why? Because the emperors of Rome, they loved, loved to dip people in oil, particularly criminals, Christian criminals, and then they would impel them, and they would stick a, a, a rod through their body. And then once the rod was through their body, they would light their head on fire and use them to light the streets of Rome. So we're talking about people who are in extreme persecution, major fiery trials. Genocide was a part of the Roman system. They would just totally eradicate a whole family. They would get rid of a family line. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, notice his opening words. Notice how Peter does this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are exiles. What's that? Elect exiles. What a phrase. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, there's a phrase there, elect exiles. What does that mean? Elect means they're God's chosen people. We've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Exiles means they're not in their home territory. They weren't. Some of your translations call them foreigners, aliens. We're calling this series Exiles. It means they're not in the home territory. You are God's chosen people, Peter says, living in and under the domination of an enemy power. In other words, you don't belong here. That's, this is not where you belong. You're citizens of a... Another country, you are aliens, you are passerbys, you are foreigners. You don't fit in as a believer. Why? Because you are, you are fine-tuned into something entirely different. You're marching to the beat of a different drum. Now imagine if you were watching college football one Saturday um, or an NFL game on one Sunday and you saw the biggest drum corps you've ever seen in your life, 600 people. Go on to the football field and they have all their eyes locked on one person, the drum major, the conductor who's up on the stand. And this person is, is leading this band and this drum corps is literally on the same beat. And imagine if you looked out on that field and right in the middle of them all, you got a dude with his drum on the ground and he's got headphones on and he's listening to an Usher song being you know, radioed from Power 94, right? Like you would look at that guy and you would say, dude, you look odd, right? Now he doesn't look odd if you see him in downtown Woodstock. 
But in comparison to the people around him, he looks odd. Peter starts his letter saying, that's what we look like. We as believers are to look really odd. We're not to fit in. We, we are to respond and look a whole lot different than the world around us. We're called to be different. Different. Imagine how odd that would be. And what First Peter is going to teach us is that what separates, ready? What separates the people of God from the people of the world distinctly, most distinctly. We see in First Peter what separates, this is our time in history. This is our time in our nation. We have been called to live in this time. God appointed the boundaries of our dwellings. God appointed that we would live through this pandemic. Nothing catches God by surprise. And what God tells us in First Peter is that what separates the people of God from the people of the world is how the people of God respond respond to disappointment, how we respond to pandemics, how we respond to pain, and how we have hope even in the midst of suffering. That's what First Peter tells us. It's no secret that in times like these, people look for sources of comfort, right? People are looking for sources of comfort around them. And so we're glad that you're here, whether you're streaming today and you're just giving Jesus a try or this is new to you. We're so glad that you're here. But we are now in the church calendar, what we call Eastertide. Eastertide means the days after Jesus is resurrected. He spent 40 days on the earth before he ascends to the Father. Now, the ascension of Jesus is not escapement, it's enthronement. He's not escaping the world, he's being enthroned over the world. You've got to understand that. But Jesus, while he's here on the earth, this is so amazing. He, once he is resurrected, we find that the disciples are not out on the streets preaching of his resurrection. They're huddled behind locked doors, scared for their lives. Right? And I just think it's appropriate. I don't know. I just think it's appropriate to mention today and understand that Easter starts not with peppy little statements and promises, but it starts with anxiety and confusion. That's where Easter starts. It starts right there. Anxiety, a definition I came across I give to you today, a feeling of worry, a feeling of nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Y'all, I think it's safe to say that we as the people of God and that we as a, a, a human being on planet Earth today, that we can resonate with where the early disciples were when they're locked away in rooms. I'm not sure if you've researched the state of anxiety in America today, but, but we are in a time of unprecedented anxiety. Unprecedented in August 2018, the Medical News Today said this, Barnes & Noble, which is the largest book retailer in the United States, announced a huge surge in the sales of books about anxiety. Watch this, a 25% jump on June 2017. 25% in one year from the year before. And then he says in a very sarcastic tone, we may be living in an anxious, anxious nation, one press release dryly notes. That's an understatement, right? Today, anxiety disorders, this is amazing, are the most common mental illness in the U.S. I don't even like to call them mental illness, but that's what they're called psychologically and by psychiatric care. Anxiety is a part of life in the sense that we're all, as humans, going to experience it. So I don't like to categorically throw people into an illness. But, but that's how it's categorized by the professionals. And watch this. Anxiety disorders are number one. And watch this. Affecting around 40 million adults. Almost one in five people. Globally, the WHO, the World Health Organization, says that almost 300 million people have anxiety disorder. The American Psychiatric so Association ran a poll of 1,000 U.S. residents in 17. And they found that nearly two-thirds... 66% were extremely or somewhat anxious about health and safety for themselves and their families. And more than a third are more anxious overall now than they were last year. 
So what's the fruit of this, y'all? What is the fruit of this? Here's the fruit of this. The United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. The most anxious. In fact, 25% of teenagers between 13 and 19 deal with an anxiety disorder. You understand that. I'm not saying they're a little bit anxious to go to school. I'm saying one out of four kids you meet that are teenagers are dealing with anxiety in a real strong way. One out of four. Now, you call it what it wants. You see yes, no, indifferent. But I'm just stating a fact. I'm just stating a fact of the world that you and I lived in. So anxiety is everywhere. This led Robert Lehigh. I think this is an amazing statement. You want to talk about a powerful statement. This is a child psychologist. He said, the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. So what would be hospitalized in the 1950s as a psychiatric ward is an average child today. All kinds of morphing forces, all kinds of anxious realities. That is a powerful statement. Now let me ask you, all of that was written before the global pandemic called COVID-19. So I just got a question for you. Do you think our anxiety has gone down as a nation or do you think our anxiety has gone up? It's very apparent. Our cultural, listen, uncertainty has sparked even more cultural anxiety. And now it's even a part of the cultural wars. So now our society here in the midst of 2020 is trying to Go in desperate pursuit of peace in a time of anxiety. So I'm both very excited to share this topic today, but I'm also very sensitized by what we're approaching. And I want you to hear me. I want to share God's word to the, to the emotions that are crippling our world today. The, 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 the word of God and how it speaks to our emotions. No matter what you believe about God, I think we could all say we could use a little less anxiety in our world today. Amen? No matter what you believe about God. And my goal, listen, in these moments is that we find some progress. My goal over the next few moments is not just an exchange of information. My goal today is that we create some headway. We get some traction. We see some progress in the area of our lives. My goal today is that we would see anxiety decrease and righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost increase. That this is what God desires for us. Now, some sermons, they matter more to me. I wish this wasn't the case. This one matters more to me. This one matters more to me because I, like you, have battled anxiety. And so what I do today is I move into this topic with sensitivity and care, but I'm going to also move into it with boldness. You know why we need boldness? Because we need to be bold in this area if we're going to see progress in the church. And we don't let fear run our lives. So today in a writing from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, notice what happens. This is one of the most famous verses on anxiety. If you're new to the Christian faith and you, you talk to people like me, speakers, preachers, pastors, you say, what's your favorite verse on anxiety? This will show up about 7 out of 10 times. I'm not sure why, but it is. This is our, this is our main anxious verse that we see. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now watch this, comma. Now, verse 7 is a continuation of 6. You can't interpret 7 apart from 6. That's key. Okay? Now, I have. I have. I've spent years of my life interpreting 7 apart from 6, but can't do that. Context everything. Context is everything in interpretation. So notice what he said. He said, casting all of your anxieties onto him. Why? Because he cares for you. So here is Peter, one of the twelve. He's been through a lot, y'all. He denied our Savior before a, a, a slave girl right next to a fireside outside the Sanhedrin the night Jesus was betrayed. 
and, and he's been through a lot in his journey, and he comes to and he says, I want you exiles, diaspora believers, believers that are fearing for their life. They're on the run. They're in little meeting groups all over Asia Minor. He said, I want you exiles to understand you need to cast your cares on God because he cares for you. What I want to do in the moments we have together is I want to unpack this verse. But listen, I've got, and, and we have to see that we got to put this verse in its context. Its context, not ours. Then what we can do is apply it to our context. Okay? And again, my goal today is that we leave changed. Can I hear an amen? Just one or two. Okay? It's not, oh, that felt good. Yeah, it felt good, but I, I don't need to feel good. I need to change. Anybody need to change? I mean, we as a nation need a change as it relates to anxiety. We need a change in our world. See, what I have found is that when it comes to treating subjects like anxiety, I think we in the church, we treat anxiety like we treat our spouse when we're trying to be smart with them. What do you mean, Pastor Craig? You know, husbands go to the refrigerator and you open it up and the cottage cheese is right there. But you can't see the cottage cheese for some reason. I don't know if there's a little invisible glue on it or something. But the cottage cheese is right there. But you're looking at everything but the cottage cheese. And so you finally get so frustrated. You go to your wife and be like, where's the cottage cheese? Okay? I don't know why I pick cottage cheese. I like cottage cheese. It may something about my personality. I don't know. You put a pineapple and bring it up on stage, I might scarf it down right now. But, but, but cottage cheese, you can't see it. And so what happens is you say to your wife, hey, where's the cottage cheese? And what do they do? They get a little bit smart. Oh, I, I don't know if you do. Maybe you need to open it again and see that it's right there. Right? And so what happens is we... As the church have kind of treated anxiety like that. Like we see people, okay, that they're anxious and they say, you know what, I've been battling anxiety. And we're like, well, you should, uh, you should give that to the Lord, buddy. You might add a little buddy in there just to make it nice. You, you should probably give that to the Lord. Uh, and they're like, yeah, uh, it doesn't seem to be working. Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, so you're saying the Lord doesn't work, huh? Oh, okay, the Lord doesn't, well, he works, he works, but you're going to have to learn to just, you, you, can you open your eyes, okay, can you open your eyes and see that it's right there, I mean, you just need, all, all you do is put a little more effort into it, you know, you just grab right like that, and, and, and oh, you should put a little more effort, that's how we treat it, and then we say to him, um, have you really confessed your sins and prayed the prayer of faith that the healing, that the healing might come, right, that's how we treat it. See, when it comes to sensitive subjects like anxiety, which is, I, I don't mean to be too simple, but it's this all-consuming extreme fear that can paralyze people emotionally, psychologically, uh, mentally, and even physically. I think we just need to admit something this morning before we start, as we start. The way we've been approaching anxiety is broken. It's broken. It's not working. Even going to church more ain't killing it. It's not dissipating by just getting together in a building once a week with other believers. That's not taking care of it. That's not causing it to diminish. Now, I think our approach, listen, I don't think the scripture's broken, but I think our approach and I think our interpretation, dare I say, our abuse of the scripture is broken. I would like to fully declare that today. Now, I wish, church, I wish there were some stats I could pull out right now. And we could say, hey, look at all the Jesus followers. They have far less anxiety. But in fact, there are no numbers in this nation that support that. 
Jesus' followers, at least in this country, are just as riddled by anxiety as anyone else. Just as riddled by fear and worry and nervousness as anybody else. And so we have to at least admit our approach to this issue might be broken. We take verses like 1 Peter 5 and 7, right? And we don't even read verse 6. We don't need verse 6. We just need verse 7, right? And so we take it out of context and we just see that, no, it's not a continuation of 6. And we say things like, you need to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, old King James Version. You need to cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Preachers like me, we get up and we'll say, hey, you need to cast your cares. You need to cast your cares. You need to cast your cares. And people are like, oh, we're trying. Well, why don't you just put a little more effort to it? Open the fridge again. It's right there in front of your eyes. Have you confessed all your sin? Have you really read your Bible? Have you spent time in prayer? And yet, for these people, sometimes it's like it's not working. It's not changing. My question today is, could there be more just in our verses? Could today we look at the verses and actually find more than what's at the surface? See, we've told you and constantly communicate from this pulpit that context is everything when you talk about interpretation. Context is everything. For instance, this letter is written to Jesus' followers who are spread abroad. They're in different islands. They're in different places. Why are they spread about? Because they're running for their life. They're scared to death. Their sons and daughters are getting killed. People are getting persecuted. Believers are getting persecuted all around Asia Minor. So they're meeting over here and they're meeting over there. And, and persecution is happening to their loved ones. And First Peter, listen church, is not a fireside chat kind of book. No, it is an urgent letter written to anxious ridden Christians and disciples who are wondering if tomorrow is the day I'm going to die. That's where it's at. So this book, you have to understand, is not a book that just happens to mention anxiety and much the, amidst all the other things in the, in the, in the, in the letter uh, written to Christians who are in wonderful houses and meet together in wonderful buildings in North America and have freedom of religion. No, no, no. These are, this is not what the book was written to. These, this book was written to terrify believers who are on the run, whose dads, whose moms, whose brothers, whose sisters, whose aunts are getting killed, are getting persecuted, are getting martyred for their faith. You have to understand this, this letter is written to, to, to not individuals, but groups of people and communities of people. Now that's going to be very important here in just a minute to understand because of our uber-individualized culture, individualistic nation. It's just a statement of fact. Again, you take it. Yes, no, be indifferent. That's just an observation. We are becoming more and more isolated. We are becoming more and more individualized. Now, I know it helps the physical body, but who knows what this last six, seven weeks has done to, to, to people mentally in our nation. We, we are, I'm telling you, we are not ready. We are not ready for the fallout. Okay. When you're already in a nation that's so ridden by that. Like, if we've learned anything out of this quarantine, come on, can, can you just admit that the opposite of addiction is not abstinence. It's human connection. And when people don't have human connection, they go back to their addiction. You don't get over addiction by yourself. You're not wired by God that way to do it. You can't get through it yourself. It's impossible to get through it yourself. That's how God's innately made us as human beings. That we need people in our lives. We have to have people in our lives. So this letter's written to groups of people, right? Our stats support this. Technology supports this. You already know where I'm going with this. I'm going to touch on that today because it is absolutely increasing our anxiety. Isolation. It is innate in the human condition. You were designed to feel like you were known. 
You were designed to feel like you were known. Listen, you were made to know that someone knows not the person you were supposed to be, but the person you be. You were made by God to feel like someone knows that about you. It, it is, listen, it is foundational to the human psyche and to emotional development that you actually have to feel like you are known. And when you are not known, and when you're not known and you can't be known if you, if you don't get you know, open and honest and vulnerable with people, then what happens is you think, you know, if people get to know me, the real me, people won't like what they get to know. And so all of a sudden we feel this kind of discarded, this, this detached, if I can say it, isolated, individualistic, individualized experience where we as humans are left all alone with our fears and with our terrors and our worries. So this book, First Peter, rushes to our aid, and it's written under a premise that there are Christians gathering over here, and there are Christians gathering over here, and there are Christians gathering in, in small groups. I wish I could say they're big groups, but they're not. These, these diaspora exiles are meeting all over the place. And they're fear. They're fearful. Full of terror. So let's get a, let's get a little sense of... What Peter's doing here, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 1, notice again the context. He said, I, Peter, am an apostle on assignment by Jesus, the Messiah, writing to exiles scattered to the four winds. Not one is missing, not one is forgotten. They needed to hear that. They need to hear that. Let me tell you what people need to hear in a pandemic. Not one is missing, not one is forgotten. Let me tell you what people need to hear in our culture. Not one is missing, not one is forgotten. God the Father has his eye on each of you and is determined by the work of the Spirit to keep you obedient through the sacrifice of Jesus. You see that? To keep you obedient, not through your sacrifice, but through his sacrifice. You see that? May everything, watch this, good from God be yours. So Peter says, hey, this is a letter written for Christians on the run. They're terrified. We go on, 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 22, 23. Now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth. Watch this. Watch what Peter does. What's the gall, nerve, and audacity? Love one another as if your lives depended on it. I want to read it again. Love one another as if your lives depended on it. Your new life's not like your old life. Your old birth came from mortal sperm. Now, now, are you picking up what I'm picking up? That's the problem. He's writing to people who are worried whether or not they're going to live tomorrow. Uh, Peter, with all due respect, you're adding some little anxiety to my anxiety. I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow and have a life, and you're telling me You see what Peter's doing? You you can't miss this. You cannot miss this. You see how he's flipping it on its head? You need to love one another like your life depends on it. That's what you got to do. Your old birth is not like your new birth. Peter says love one another. In other words, community relationships, connectivity is essential for the believer. He goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2. By the way, this is all, y'all. This is all before 1 Peter 5, 6, 7, 8. And you got to see that. We can't jump to 1 Peter 5 until we see this. Um, welcome to the living stone, the source of life. The workmen, the world, they took one look at Jesus, threw him out. But God set him in the place of honor. Present yourselves. What's this? Present yourselves, plural, plural, yourselves, second person plural, not, not second person singular, yourselves as building stones. Watch this. For the construction of a sanctuary that is vibrant with life in which you 
you all will serve as holy priests offering Christ approved lives up to God. This is where this is before 1 Peter 5 7 where it says take all your anxiety and cast it on him. It starts with hey I'm writing to some people on the run who need each other who, who need to he, who need to know that there are believers who care for one another. He said I want you to love each other like your life depends on it. And then he says let me give you a metaphor. You are being you are like stones being built together. Like if I had bricks up here, you would know what about the relationship with bricks is that they have close proximity. They're real close. They're in tight knit relationships. They're they're deeply connected, right? That's what bricks are. This is all about context. And so he says, I'm writing to groups. I'm writing to groups of people who are being put together like bricks. It becomes very apparent to me, church, really, really apparent that, that one of the overarching themes of 1 Peter is this deep sense of connectedness and this deep sense of togetherness and this deep sense of relationship. Now, bear with me. Here's the problem we face in America. You ready? And I'm not, I'm not trying to say something disturbing to disturb people. I'm trying to say something disturbing to, to, to get us to move forward. Here's the problem we face. This right here not only is not practical for us to be in deep relationship, it's not even feasible. Going to worship once a week is not even feasible to really get to... Meaning everyone in this room, you can't know me. And I can't know you. And if all we do is live under the premise that church is going to be a gathering... By the way, that wasn't our intention when we started this, right? Our, our intention, we didn't launch the church so we could fill up rooms. We want to see growth. We want to see people change. But we launched the church so that people could be put together. We launched the church so that people could have relationship they could lean on for the rest of their lives. Because you're going to need it. You're going to need it. You're going to need people you can lean on. So here's what we're faced with. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, in a, in a setting like this, what we will do is we will hear... Oh, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. And we will all go home to our own little places, right? And here's what we'll do. We'll say, I'm going to cast my care. I'm going to cast my care. You can't cast your care alone. It's a group project. It's a group project. It's humble yourselves. Cast care yourselves. Not myself, but ourselves. We're casting. Now, this is where we must move. Hear me. Here is my consideration. Here's my thesis. Here's my theme for today. I wonder, it's a question. I wonder if our depth of connection and care for each other is directly linked to the depth of our understanding of God's care and connection for us. Let me say it another way. I wonder if our care and connection of one another is directly linked to the depth of our understanding of God's care and connection with us. Let me give it more simple terms. You ready? I wonder if our often lack of care for one another is revealing to what we truly believe about how God cares for us. Okay? It will end good, by the way. Okay, it's going to get better. I'm, just bear with me for a minute. Some of you are saying, no, I feel like you're making me a little more anxious, Craig. Okay, that would be counterproductive. It's going to get gooder. Okay, stick with me. But, but, but notice this. Peter says the reason and motivation for giving God these crippling fears. By the way, how many of y'all know they can come out of nowhere? Anybody else lived in a pandemic for the last six, seven weeks? Anybody? There's a pandemic up in, around Canton. I don't know if y'all got a pandemic, but right around Canton there's a little pandemic. People are wigging out in all ways. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, these fears can be untruthful. They can be unfounded. They can come from anywhere. 
They don't, they don't announce. It's, it's crazy. They don't tell you the night before they're going to come in the morning. It's, it's amazing how they do this. These fears, anxieties, they come out of nowhere. How many of y'all know anxiety is when the uncontrollable converges with the unknowable? And when the uncontrollable, what I can't get my hands on, converges with what I don't know about my future, woo! you feel like, whoa, what is going on? I have this feeling of you know, impending doom or dread or this existential dread that's just kind of, hang- I don't even know where it came from. I don't even know why I feel it. I feel this imminent danger. I don't even know why you feel that way. And Peter says, listen, you need to give that to God. And here's why. Because he cares so deeply for you. Y'all, this is wild. This is wild. I'm a preacher. I've read this, I bet, a hundred times, and I don't know why I've never seen this. Notice what Peter does not say. He does not say, give your anxiety to God because he'll fix it. He says, give it to God because he cares about it. That's what he said. He didn't say, give it to God, he's going to take it away. He said, give it to God because he cares for you. That's what it says. That's what the text clearly communicates to us. Now, which one is better, y'all? Someone who can fix it but doesn't care? Or someone who cares about it and walks with you through it. I don't know about you, but, but for me, when I'm in pain, y'all, when I'm in pain, I'm like, I, I, woo, I, 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 don't, I don't even need no answers right now. I just need you to be here with me, okay? I don't need no answers. It ain't going to help me. It ain't going to help me get through the emotional trauma I'm going through right now. I just need somebody to know that you have some solidarity with me. you with me right now. I know you're with me. You're going to stick with me. We're together. And, and this, is, this is beyond me. I need your help. How many of y'all know there are some mysteries on this planet that ain't nobody can explain? And nobody can give credence or clarity to those issues. And sometimes you just need to sit there with your friend and say, hey, man, I don't know. I don't know. You want to cry? All right, let's cry. All right, cool. You want to dance now? All right, cool. Let's dance. Let's dance. You want to laugh? All right, let's go back crying again. You ready to cry? All right, here we go. You know what I'm talking about. And the Bible reveals that God is a person who wants to connect with you on that level. That's where he wants to be. Y'all, God does not come in like a magi- magician to our anxiety and say, whoop, whoop, gone. Isn't, aren't I amazing? Oh, yes, God, you are amazing. Uh, see you next time. No, 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 no. He, he's right there with you in it. I was going to title this message, God is a God, not a magician. He, he's there with you. He's in the midst of the anxiety because he cares for you. He's a guy. But I'm not sure we know how much God cares for us. Because Peter says you won't give your anxieties to God if you don't know how much he cares for you. Listen, y'all, I want to tell you one of the reasons I don't give my anxieties to God is because I don't really understand how much he cares. And you know why? Can I tell you why? Because that's how it works down here on planet Earth. Do you know that? That's the way it works. Okay. I'm a preacher, so I'm going to pick on me, but you, you just laugh at me while I'm picking on me, but you, you put you in you, your, your role. Okay. So I won't, I won't pick on you, I'll pick on me. But let me tell you, let me tell you how this works. Okay. This, this anxiety thing, this is how it works. I'm a preacher. You don't see all of me. And frankly, frankly, I can't show you all of me because I don't think you will like all of me. So, 
That's just the facts. That's just the position I hold, believe. I'm a pastor, but the Bible says I'm not defined by a pastor. The Bible says I'm defined by a son and a disciple of Jesus. Second to that, I'd be a husband and a dad. But pastor, that's my role, right? But what ends up happening, watch this, is I learn over time. 15 years of doing this, y'all. 15 years of doing it, I learned, hey, I have to be a certain way to be a pastor. I have to be that way. And then it gets real convoluted. You ready? It gets real mixed up real quickly because I start to wonder, am I being me or am I playing a role? Just me today, right? Am I really being me or am I playing a role for the people around me? In other words, if I stop playing a role, if if, if there is a part of this role that is not me, will I still be loved? Will I still be cared for? Because the people in the church care for me for, for what I am to them. I'm a pastor to them. I, I preach God's word to them. I pray for them. I counsel them. I care for them. So there's a part of me that begins to learn, hey, you know what? This is the reality. Like, like if I got up right now and told the church, like now there is a little thing called discretion, but if I got up and told the church right now some of the things I'm struggling with, some of you'd be like, all right, honey, get your Bible, get your things. We're going to be right out this back door. You know, we're going to go find us a nice pastor, right? Right? And so I know this because you want that from me too. You don't want me to be too broken. You don't want me to be too fragmented. You don't want me to be in a situation like that. You don't want that, and I learned that. So I make sure I do that. Now, here's what happens. You ready? Here's where it gets real. That leaks into my view of God. You ready? That leaks. Your psyche does not have the ability to turn that off. When you start thinking about how you relate to your father. So your psyche can't just suddenly morph. And think oh no he loves me for who I am. No no no. What happens is. Because the psyche is so complex. I start to wonder. Let me say it like this. Does God care about all the parts of me? Because I know people don't. Does God care about everything? My brothers and sisters, can I just tell you the obvious? Preachers are among the most discarded individuals and probably discarded faster than any other profession in our nation. Right? I mean, people jump church left to right, think there's nothing personal to it whatsoever, right? I mean, I mean it, it's just the reality of the world you and I live in. And if you're a feeler like me and you're a pastor like me, man, you better, you better quickly, quickly learn how to deal with that. Quickly learn how to have a heart of a child and a head of a scholar and the skin of a rhinoceros. You, you have to learn really quickly how you're going you're gonna to make it through that. You're going to understand that. Now, by the way, I have no big announcement today. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that, okay? I'm going to be the pastor here at Dwelling Place. Some of you are like, oh, dear God, I'm getting a little anxious right now. This is a prelude to an announcement. No announcement by the grace of God, okay? I'm married to one woman. I still love that woman, okay? I got three kids. I've stolen no money from DPC during this quarantine, all right? None whatsoever. But, but what I do is I start to go. Here's what I do. People say, hey, well, we believe the word of God. Yeah, you believe the word of God, but you know what you believe sometimes more than the word of God? Your experiences. You just do. You just do. And my experiences tell me, listen, you ready? When I walk into a room, subconsciously, I am so self-aware as a pastor now. Am I projecting? Am I communicating? Am I caring? Am I 
Am I praying? Am I loving? Am I reaching there? No, see, don't dismiss yourself. That's what you want to do, but don't do that. So I'm talking about subconsciously. Do you do the same thing? Yeah. Uh, am I loving? Am I, am I reaching to touch and reaching to speak and reaching to care for that person? And, and what happens is, am I doing that? Because that's how I get cared for. That's how I get valued. That's how I get appreciated because that's my role. And then the brain has such a hard time completely shifting when it starts to relate to God. So what happens is I go to God and I'm like, uh, I'm not even able to be honest with myself before God because I don't even know if God really loves every part of me. Now, some of you right now say, I don't believe that. I know God loves me. He loves me in everlasting love. Okay, let me ask you a question real quick. You ready? Do you think God cares about the lying part of you? Well, let me take a step further. Do you think God cares about the lustful part of you? Let me take a step further. Have you ever considered, does God care about the addictive part of you? Or do you think that's the part that God says, mm, nasty? See, there's this old statement, hate the sin, love the sinner. I just don't think we can do it because we can't disassociate as humans. God can, but we can't. We don't know how to disassociate, so, so it's very difficult for us. So we think God loves us, loves us, loves us, loves us, loves us, loves us, and then he gets to the lustful, the arrogant, the cheating, the addictive part of us, and he goes, oh, hmm. And we go, I know. I know, God, uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll work on it, and I'll come back to you. And and we think God's over here saying, hmm, it's nice that you acknowledge that. But it's true. I can give you all kinds of examples emotionally of how we do this with God, how we relate to our Father this way. This is what happens. And we do that because that's how people have reacted to our issues. Right? That's how the church has been to us. And we're trying our best. And people are like, hey, can I tell you something? And you're like, yeah, you know, you're leaning in. You know you're about to get it. Hey, can I tell you something a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah come on. What's going on? And then you're like, whoa, 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 wow, shut the sharing window right now, okay? All right, that's enough, that's nasty, you know, like, and, and so over time we learn, what do we do? We learn there is this duplicity, right? And I'm talking about good church-going people, folks, I ain't talking about people come once every four weeks, I'm talking about people being in church every Sunday, they have duplicity, they have one life here, they have another life there, and they're in a place in life where they think nobody really knows who they are. I'm talking about down deep who they are. And this is where a lot of anxiety happens. Late at night, they're even surrounded by friends, sometimes associates. And yet they feel like no one knows who I really am. There's not a single person on the planet who actually knows me fully. And and, and it gets worse. We realize we can't ever tell anybody because if we do... I'm talking about like primal stuff, y'all. I ain't talking about like, oh, I lied to my friend. I'm talking about primal human nature things. We feel like if we ever tell anybody, then that'll cost me my marriage or that'll cost me my, my friends or that'll cost me influence. That, my friends, is a breeding ground for anxiety. That's why I felt like the Lord's given me clarity. 
for the, the moment we live in. That is a breeding ground for anxiety. Why? Because you're constantly gearing up to play a role. So on Sunday night, you get ready, you go to bed, and you wake up the next day. And... All right, here we go. Well, you can do that good for about three weeks. And if you ever lead in any capacity, business world, church world, if you ever lead in any capacity, you know the feeling of those days where you're just off. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're just off, off. There ain't nothing you can change about it. You're just off, and you're like, oh, dear God, i got to be the leader again today. Or at least I'm going to act like the leader. All right, here we go. Breathe deep. Hey, how you doing? You guys doing good? I'm blessed and highly favored. Hey, let's sell, sell, sell. Hey, let's go out and get, you know. like We play this role. We feel so anxious. So we can, maybe today, just for a moment, let's just do a quick exercise. You ready? Let's ask God and let's sink in just for a few moments of the reality of God's deep affection for us. I want to submit for your own study and consideration of the scriptures. I want to submit this. That God loves every single part of you. Every single part of you. Listen to me. The part that you're most disgusted with, he loves. The part that you're most ashamed of, he loves. The part that you don't want to tell anybody about, he loves that part. Well, Craig, that can't be true. It has to be true. Or else we create God in our own image. It has to be true. That thing you won't show anyone. You know, I started thinking this way. It's like the human body. You know the human body? Like when we get a hemorrhage, we get a cut, we get a bruise, we get an injury. What happens? The blood rushes to it. You know what? That's just like God. Your body is telling you how God is. You know what he's saying? Where you're hurting the most, his love rushes to the most. Do you realize that? You're made in the image of God. And when you get a cut, all the blood goes to it. That's exactly like God. God's just telling you with your body, this is what I'm like. When you're in pain, I rush to it. When you're in a place of cut, I rush to it. When you're in a place of injury, I rush to it. Wherever you're most fearful, my blood rushes to Wherever you're, you're most apt and prone to constantly fall, my grace wants to change you there. He loves you. Can I say it like this? You ready? No one's really good but God, but let me tell you something. We just think he loves our good parts, but I'm here to submit to us today and announce that God loves your bad parts. He loves all of you. The Amplified Version calls it this. It calls it deep affection or affinity. It, it calls it intimacy. It calls it oversight. It calls it a father. It's like a dad who walks in on his kids just to watch them sleep. You know what I'm talking about, dads. You're just doting over your kids, just watching them sleep. You're adoring your kids just while they're sleep. God is passionately involved in every area and part of your life, whether you're aware of it or not, and he's always moving. So watch this. You see this? If we can believe God cares, even the bad parts of us, what it does is it takes us back to verse 6. And notice what verse 6 says. It says, humble yourselves. And then there's a comma. There's a continuation. So one of the ways you humble yourself is you actually cast your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Now listen, this is the way you humble yourself. Now, now anxiety, excuse me, humility or humble yourselves could be the same word inter-exchanged here as what we call contentment. You have to understand. You begin to accept God's love for you. And by the way, you can't do that by yourself. you got to do that with other people. I'll get there in just a moment. But when you begin to accept that God's deep care and concern for you, what happens is the deep affection of the Father fills you. Once you do that, once you understand that, a contentment comes on your life. It's called humility. You know what I'm talking about? 
Contentment is a life that gets reoriented around other people and more importantly around the beauty and majesty of God. Contentment is not to be more self-focused. The irony of life is the more focused on self I become, the more miserable I become. So, so contentment is when my life gets ordered around others and around the beauty and majesty of God. When that happens, what happens? Settles in my life a contentment. It's these extraordinary people you run into, you know what I'm talking about, who are very confident. You know these people who are very secure. You know these people who don't want to be you. Everybody else in your school wants to be you. They don't want to be you. They want to be them, and they're good with being them. And they're not intimidated by your success, and they're not uh, shunned by your failure. You know what I'm talking about? These can, you, by, by this point, I don't want to keep on describing this person, but you should be feeling like, my God, I want to be that person. I want to be that individual with contentment like that. Well, Peter seems to be alluding. Listen, and he's not talking to people that are dealing with a hangnail. Although hangnails hurt like the dickens sometimes. He's talking about people who are on the run for their lives. And he says, when you believe that God cares even about the bad parts of you, there's going to be a settling in your soul. And you won't have to perform anymore. And then the settling will lead you to go have counsel with God. Watch this. Lead you to have counsel with God. Some people call it prayer. I'm not going to call it prayer because prayer is like white noise. It's like elevator music. Uh, we pray. We, that, that doesn't mean anything anymore. When we've got the care, contentment, then we start counseling with God. And we go to God and we say, God, I keep getting all worked up about this, man. Woo, Lord, do you want to help me again? Would you speak to me? And of course he speaks to us. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the spirit of Jesus will tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. So the Spirit will speak to us in our anxious moment. And he'll calm us again. Now look at 1 Peter 5, 7. He said, cast your cares on God, for he cares for you. Most likely Peter is quoting Psalm 55, 22 here. Most likely Peter didn't come up this with himself. He's quoting from the psalm. Now this is the verse we believe as Christians. This is the verse. We don't believe the 1 Peter 5. We believe this one. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you, and he will never permit the righteous to be moved. So here's what we think. We think, hey, we can cast our burden on the Lord. He's going to sustain us. As long as we're righteous, things will work out. But if we ever get off course, ain't no more, ain't, ain't no more sustaining us, right? Well, let me tell you something. This verse, Psalm 55, 22, has been beautifully fulfilled in Jesus. He's already fulfilled this as the righteous one. So our, our minds should think of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen to me. God's care for you is not based on your performance it's based on Jesus's performance that's how much God cares for you that's how much he'll sustain you and I want to say to us today for those of us who have repented and put faith in Jesus we are in Christ and I can categorically and theologically prove to you that God loves every single inch of you all of you and when you're doing the bad stuff that you hate you know what his thought to, is towards you? You know what the father's thought is to you? That ain't my son, Craig. That ain't you, bro. That ain't you. That's not my son. That's not you. That's not you. That's not who you are. It's not who I made you to be. Notice what it says in verse 6. It says, humble yourselves. It's plural. Plural. Now, we want to take this verse and say, I need to humble myself. No, 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 no. Peter says, you need to learn how to humble yourselves. You need to learn how to be content together. You need to, have to learn how to love like your life depending on it together. So listen to me. The act of casting your cares on God should be done together. In other words, I need your help in casting my cares. I need your help in casting my anxieties. Now here is where we are as a crossroads in the American church. Can I just speak just a moment and I'll close. 
I, I believe this with all my heart. And, and honestly, I didn't plan to say this. I mean, this, is, this came to me this week where I felt like God spoke to my heart in preparation. Here's where we are as a crossroads in the American church. We have a problem. We have thousands and thousands of Christians that are filling thousands and thousands of auditoriums. And within those thousands and thousands of Christians, we have thousands and thousands of people that are not experiencing yourselves. They're only experiencing yourself. So we got all these big churches, or just churches, filled with auditoriums. But what we're not being honest about, if we're real, is we're becoming more individualized. And we're becoming more isolated. And it's easier now than ever to slip into a community, quote unquote, and out of the community. And never be a part of yourselves, but just yourself. And it's apparent to me in this book. It's apparent to me in scripture. that This book is written to people whose lives are dominated by the fear of the future. That this anxiety fight cannot be an isolated attack or individual fight. It has to be a group project. It has to be us casting our anxieties together. But here's the problem. This room is not your group. This room ain't your group. Where was Jesus when he experienced the most anxiety in his life? Where was he up under the most stress? Most difficult moment of his life. Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of the oil press. One of the canonical gospels. Mark chapter 14. You know what it says about that? The Bible says Jesus took 12. Look what it said. Mark 14. He, 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 he looked to the disciples. 12 says sit here while I pray. Then what he did. He got three even closer to him. And he went a little bit further. And when he went a little bit further. You know what he did? The Bible says he began to be distressed. And, and, and you can debate all day theologically. Whether his blood. What well, sweat ever turned to blood. And I know theologians love that. And, or maybe it was just light blood. Or, well the reality is he's under great distress. Because he's going to die by tomorrow morning or be hanging on a cross by 9 a.m. And so here he is. And you know what he says to his disciples? He said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Look at the message translation. He says this. Oh, I love you. He said, I feel bad enough right now to die, disciples. Peter, James, and John. I feel like I'm about to die. Have any of you been there? In my 34 years of living, I've been there. I, I, I've, I, so what does Jesus show us socially in the moment of his greatest despair? I'm going to take Peter, James, and John who are not perfect, but I still need them. He knew they weren't perfect, but he still needed them. He, he took 12 there and he took three here. So my question for you today is who is your Peter, James, and John? Because you're going to need them. Who's your Peter, James, and John? I created a little graphic for us. The, 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 the spaces of belonging. And, and I want you to think about this. Public space, 70 plus. All you get in that is visibility with people. Social space is between 20 and 50 people. What is that? That's a place of availability for others. You get 5 to 12. Like the disciples, you get personal space. That's accountability. But then intimate space, 2 to 4, that is vulnerability. Now watch what Jesus does. Jesus, what did he do? He confided in the 3... He trained the 12, he mobilized the 70, and he preached parables to the crowds. And I want us just to admit today, we have to have a church like that. That's not what this is. This can produce that, but that's not what this is. Or anxiety is going to be very difficult for us to overcome in the 21st century because this is a group project.
You are a social being alert. We are all fighting alone and isolated. And Jesus exemplifies a lifestyle that when you're at your lowest moment, do you have a Peter, James, and John? And Peter, James, and John flunk the test. They fell asleep. Can we just admit people are saying today, I'm not well. I'm, I'm really not well. We need Peter, James, and John's. We need Peter, James, and John's. And if I can say it this, I think this is the future of American churches. I do with all my heart. The backbone of Christianity in this nation is not going to be filling auditoriums. I'm telling you, it's not working in relationship to anxiety. Now, we can, we can keep being believers, but if we want to defeat anxiety, it won't happen in large gatherings. It ain't going to happen. If it was working, we would be less anxious and numbers would be going down as people more and more go to church. But it ain't going down. It's a group project. It's a group project. So what does it get back to? It get back to our view of the gospel, friends. Say, Pastor Craig, does God know me? Oh, yeah, friend, he knows you. He knows you. He really knows you. This week I got inspired. I started painting during uh, the quarantine. So I got inspired. And I painted this picture of Jesus. And this is where I got inspired. Because he died on a cross for us or shed his blood for us, we can now cast our cares on him. But I can't cast if I don't know he cares. Do I really know how much he cares? And if I really know how much he cares, then I'll be free to cast. Do we really know how much he cares? Come on, team. The last two major areas major areas that we we have to address. And again, I'm not trying to take you out of the emotional or physical. I'm not trying to simplify terms. I believe in all that. I we're never against people getting help in their brain, help in their body. I'm I'm not here to say that, but what I am here to do is amplify the spiritual component today. And you know what the spiritual component is? We can talk all we want to talk about anxiety today, but here's the two things as a church that we often don't address. Number one, are we loving with the deep affection by which we are loved by God? And secondly, am I putting myself in those environments where we can, as a group project, cast our cares? Cast our anxieties. And can I just say it? I believe the minimization of crippling anxiety will be one of the great storylines of our church. I think people in the future will come to us and they will see how intently we listen to one another and how deeply we love one another and they'll be mesmerized and they'll recognize our non-anxious presence. I do, I believe that. In a world that's only getting more and more anxious, what are we as the people of God going to do? It's a group project. It's a group project. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.